0: This episode of the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the third annual Hawaii Festival of Birds, held September 14th through 17th at Keahoe Bay on the Big Island of Hawaii. This year's festival theme is Back from the Brink, Hawaii's Battle Against Extinction. Experience fascinating keynote lectures about efforts to protect Hawaii's birds and habitats, a film festival, a bird fair, and field trips that allow you to personally experience some of Hawaii's most extraordinary bird species, including the EEV, ABA's 2018 Bird of the Year. It's right there on the festival logo, after all. You can learn more and register for the festival at birdfesthawaii.org. Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm your host, Nate Swick, and we have a special episode for you this time around. Well, a a different sort of episode would be better to say. They're, They're all special to me. They're all my children. In this episode, we have prepared a panel discussion held at last month's Biggest Week in American Birding. It is the Women and ABA Big Year panel featuring five women who have all tackled a big year of some fashion in the last few years. Uh, Thanks especially go out to Kim Kaufman and all of the exceptional people at the Biggest Week for coming up with such a great idea for a panel and allowing us to reproduce it here for you as a podcast. I think you will really enjoy it. There are some great insights into Big gear Birding from all of the people involved. So I'll try to keep my part of the episode on the short side to get all of that in. It does run a little bit longer than our typical episodes do, but I wanted to announce the winners of the book drawing that I introduced in the last episode. So congratulations to Elliot Nelson and Gail Shore, uh, the random number generator, randomly chose you, and your books are in the mail right now. So thanks for listening to the podcast. So the second in our Voices from the Biggest Week annual series, the Women and ABA Big Year panel is coming up. I'll get you set up and introduce you to the panelists right after this week's Rare Birds. Rare Birds. <laughs> This is your Rare Bird Focus for the middle of June 2018. It's officially summer, but that doesn't mean that spring vagrant season is over in western Alaska. Recent reports include Oriental cuckoo on St. Paul, a Code 5 rufus-tailed robin on Gamble and dark-sided flycatcher, and a likely Kamchatka leaf warbler on Attic in the western Aleutians. That last bird is a recent split from Arctic warbler and a bird whose distribution in the ABA area is not well known. All of those philoscopus leaf warblers can be really difficult IDs, even in the best of times. And Kamchatka leaf is almost identical to Arctic, though it is suspected that it is the more likely species in the Aleutians, and plus it apparently sounds different as well. First records of note include a common cuckoo on Haida Gwaii Island in British Columbia. This is a first for that province and the second for Canada, only the fourth away from Alaska, but this has been a pretty good spring for the common cuckoo in western Alaska, so it's perhaps less surprising that one overshot and ended up in B.C. West Virginia gets on the rosy spoonbill train as that species is experiencing a massive influx up the Atlantic coast and well inland in places like Ohio and Indiana this spring. This was a first for West Virginia. An alder flycatcher was well-documented in Boundary County, Idaho, where it was a first for that state. And in Maine, a western wood peewee was found in Washington County, where it was also a first. And in California, where we're used to seeing crazy vagrants from pretty much anywhere, an eastern meadowlark in Modoc county is a long expected first record. Makes one wonder how many ABA area breeding birds are missing on California's state list. I, I actually don't know the answer to that, but I expect it's not very many. And most that would be missing are pretty sedentary. Yeah, I may have to look into that. Anyway, this was a short roundup of the notable rarities in the ABA area for this period. For all your rare bird needs, please check out the ABA blog every Friday morning. That's blog.aba.org. You can also join our Rare Bird Alert Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups ABA Rare or follow the Rarity Twitter feed at ABA Bird Alert. Okay, so here is the panel discussion. I'm excited to share, but a quick... Production note, some of the audience questions are not mic'd, though the panel participants are all all well would So there will be times when I pop in to ask the questions for people or to make a note of who is talking, at least until you get more familiar with the people involved in their voices, and it becomes more clear who is speaking when. So with only a little bit more ado, the women and ABA Big Ears panel featuring Laura Keene of Ohio, who did an ABA big year in 2016, breaking the previous record along with three other birders and setting a new standard for photographic big years. Lynn Barber, currently in Alaska, who is the first woman to crack 700 species in a year in the ABA area. Uh, she has a memoir of that effort called Extreme Birder. Laura Erickson of Minnesota, who has a podcast and radio show of her own. I'm sure you're probably aware of that. Uh, She did a lower 48 conservation big year in 2013. Nancy McAllister from Maryland, who did what she called a mom's big year in 2016. And of course, Evie Morell from Florida. She of the most recent big year in 2017. Uh, We talked to her earlier this year on this podcast. So a lot of different ways to do a big year, uh, all about fun, fellowship, all that good stuff uh, with the extra element of breaking ground as women birders and what was very much a man's game for a long time. So, uh, a lot of good discussion. Please don't mind me breaking in from time to time to clarify some questions and some voices. Uh, At the end, Black Swamp, Bird Observatory Director, and Biggest Wheel at the Biggest Week, Kimberly Kaufman, has a few closing remarks. We'll pop in post-introduction with a question directed at Laura Keene about how she went about planning her photographic big year.
1: Um, When you're you're even planning a photographic big year, you're not looking for birds um, that are going to be seen through a scope, you want to take pictures of them and get diagnostic photos. So I planned a trip to Barrow, which most figure birders wouldn't do because I wanted pictures of eiders, which I think there was one up there. Um, and I, I had a more extended trip to Nome, and it was simply because I'd never been to either place, and it was my opportunity of a lifetime, and it was an excuse to, have, to be able to go and take pictures of these birds. But the daily, for me, the, it was pretty much a sunrise, to sunset. The best light you get is in the morning and the evening. So as a photographer, you have to be out early and out late. And so it was it was an all-day thing. And I'd get to that whatever hotel, drive where I was going, upload my pictures, fall asleep, and get up and do the same thing the next morning. So it's, it is a different experience. Um, and then I, I did make a lot of trips back to places that I had missed getting pictures of birds. I I missed getting pictures of some thrashers in Arizona. So I I traveled back to Arizona to get these pictures a couple of times. And I I traveled probably three times, four times extra to get a picture of red-billed pigeon. (laughs) Because I had blurry pictures and just not good enough pictures to be able to count. So I I I feel more connected. Everybody (laughs) birds in a different way. To me, connecting with birds is looking at them through my lens learning how they move and learning how to learn this bird's behavior so that you can snap at the right time to get them posing in the right pose so it to me it's a very settling thing to just watch the bird and then take the pictures and that's my connection with with birding
0: also for Laura, do you know of any instances where you would have seen more birds if you hadn't been focusing on photography?
1: Yeah, I know of at least one instance that um, when we were on a, the at two trip and we were we took a boat out to at two from ADAC, and you get excellent pelagic birding on both ways. And um, there was an instance where someone else, Christian Hagenlocker, is he here somewhere? <laughs> There he is. <laughs> I, I, he, he got a picture of a mottled petrel. I, that, was the one, that was the one bird that I missed for the year that I, I tried several times for, but he got a picture of one, but I looked at the timing on his, uh, his, his timestamp and I was taking pictures of a common loon that was flying across the sky. <laughs> so I missed it. <laughs>
0: For Lynn Barber, uh, how did you make these useful connections you need for a big year in a time before eBird and other online resources were so prevalent?
2: I did my big year, ABA big year in 2008. I did have a cell phone. I did have email. And I would check uh, rare bird alerts from different states. I told everybody I met and everybody I knew who knew anybody I was doing a big year to please let me know. Um and it that was it. There was no Twitter. I had, was not on Facebook. I think there was Facebook, but I wasn't on it yet. Um it was a it was a different world. We were talking about that. I feel like extremely prehistoric. <laughs>
0: <But> <laughs> How often did you connect with local people when you were birding?
2: Well, once or twice. Hardly at all. Um I didn't know anybody. I mean, I connected with one Minnesota birder who I hired for a day, um, but mostly not. Um I just I, you know, I ran into people all the time, and I was asking questions and talking to people, but as far as in advance, basically never.
0: Same question for Evie Morell.
3: Yes,
2: my, my
3: big year was completely different um, because from day one, I decided to include social media as part of my big year, and it played a huge role in my year. I had a blog that I put up on January 1st. I had thousands of followers, and I had people contacting me all year long, wanting to be a part of it. Um, I would post that I was going to California, and within 24 hours, I would have 10 people sometimes that would offer lodging, that would offer to drive me, to pick me up at airports, to, uh, to the extreme that I arrived at a trailhead in Arizona, and one of my followers was at the trailhead and said, are you Evie Morrell? And I said, yes. And he said, well, I'm here to take you to the Tufted Flycatcher. And we hiked up Ramsey Canyon, and five minutes later, we had the bird. And we became friends, and he just came down to Florida, and I got him 197 species in Florida. So, I made tremendous friends through social media, and at first, I was really against it, but... The blog helped me not only connect with my audience, but fight the loneliness aspect of a big year, because I had a group of people that was cheering me on. Lynn,
0: again?
2: I just wanted to add one thing. I've done all these state big years, which is in total contrast to the ABA big year, because in a state big year, I n- usually know the state quite well, and I send out emails to everybody I can imagine, and in my Alaska big year, I mean, every, everywhere I went, I was working with local people, but it was just a total different world. Nancy so. Nancy McAllister.
4: Uh, Just to add to that, um, as a mom, uh, you probably can guess we have to be super efficient with our time So uh, really, for me, it was the rule rather than the exception, uh, where folks, even here at The Biggest Week, offered um, to accommodate me and to help me find birds in their local areas. And um, so I called it everybody's big year. It wasn't just a mom's big year. It truly was a group effort. Um, For me, I wasn't able to do a big year in the traditional sense of targeting a specific place at a specific time when a specific bird would be there, to be honest. Uh, It was more of an opportunistic big year. I knew I had a break from the semester at this specific time, or I knew I could duck out between me giving exams uh, the beginning of November to get out to San Diego and the Rio Grande Valley. And I would have either people from that local area meet me there, or people that were familiar with that area um, or had lived there previously or whatnot. So I had to be super efficient uh, with my time. And a big part of that was depending on local birders who knew the spots so I could get back home to the family.
0: Laura Erickson.
5: Uh, I have always been dependent upon the kindness of strangers. I made a lot of friends on Facebook who helped me. I had one friend, Ali Sheehy from California, who put me up for over a week when I was uh, birding in California at the end of the year. I had a friend, Eric Bowman in California, who I knew from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology's nest cam that they had on the uh, the great blue herons. And I was the moderator there, and Eric became one. And we became fast friends, and he uh, took me all around in his neck of the woods in California. I also funded my big year with some speaking gigs where they might not have paid me much, but I could go there and be put up while I went birding there. I did the Red Slough birding. Festival in Oklahoma. I did one in Delaware, and um, it was just really fun to connect with people that way. But I am kind of shy, so if people didn't invite me, I didn't invite myself, and I slept overnight all by myself in my car in um, oh a little national forest outside Bosque del Apache one time in a ferruginous owl or a owl called the entire night. And people were saying, aren't you scared camping alone in your car? I bet you kept it locked. No, because you can't hear a flammulated owl if the windows are closed. I did mine in 2013. That was the year Neil Hayward was going great guns.
3: I, I did not address the fact that Ann Nightingale, who's sitting here in the front row, not only put me up for an entire week, picked me up at the airport, drove me all over British Columbia, and got me all of my target birds. It was amazing. An amazing act of kindness.
5: Heidi Trudell put me up when I was wasted after doing the Kalima warbler hike all alone and coming upon a mountain lion. (laughs) Which is something my uh, cardiologist brought up after my heart attack. He said, if that would have happened
1: there, that would have been one happy mountain lion. Laura King? I have to say, I had a little bit different of experience because my husband is a cybersecurity specialist. He was so supportive of everything with my big year. I I couldn't have asked for anything better than the amount of support I got from him. But his one desire was that I do not tell people where I'm going because he felt like I'm leaving my my home. I'm leaving things vulnerable with my house being empty because he traveled a lot too. And so I would tell people about it after I got there, after I saw the bird, or after I got home. I would update people with my progress on Facebook. But um, I was a little more careful about letting people know and that I just followed his wish, but I got a little bit bad at it toward the end because people, you know, you meet people along the way and they, they are then excited for you. And it's a part of, it's a, it's a part of, um, you know, their journey too. your journey becomes a lot of other people's journeys and I wanted to share it. And when, and I never experienced anything negative as a result of it. This question kind of
6: encapsulates that, but,
1: um, Do you think the whole safety issue, do
6: you feel that you face challenges doing a big year as women that men would not face? I'm guessing the answer is yes. And I'd like to hear from each of you your thoughts on that, on both the physical challenges, the security challenges, and just um, facing men who don't think you can do it.
1: Well, I have to say, I didn't. I never ran into any situation where a man thought I couldn't do it. No one ever discouraged me. Or, I got only encouragement from from everyone. But um, yeah, safety wise, you're 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 making yourself vulnerable. You're out hiking places by yourself. You're you're you know you're taking long treks. With me, I'm taking photographs, so I'm engrossed in what I'm doing. So there could be a rattlesnake nearby or a bear coming by. So I had to be you know, I had to be aware of what was around me, and you know, there's always the personal safety issue. You know, I'm carrying expensive equa- camera equipment, and um, I, the place that I felt the most vulnerable was in um, looking for the spotted dove in California, in Los Angeles, downtown Los Angeles. And so I, I got out of my car, and there were just all these people standing around. I, I, I So, I thought I'll just drive around and watch look at the wires, just check the wires and so i I drove around the block like three times, and I knew that there was a person standing there at the corner of the block as I was going around but the the fourth time I went around, the person tried to get in my car <laughs> and i I thought I' probably look like I'm selling drugs or trying to buy drugs or trying to sell or buy something so <laughs> that was so I went there th- probably three times on my usually when I was getting on a plane, but the last time I went i it happened to be that Christian, I was I was with Christian Hagenlacher, and um, having another person there who actually spoke Spanish, so he even talked to someone, and, um, you know, I, I got the dove. I mean, it, it, so that was an issue where I would have gotten it eventually, but it would have taken a lot more time. I would have had to have had one land near me. Well, I'm a lifelong
4: Girl Scout, and those of you who are familiar with scouts know buddy system is a big part of that. So I just always followed that. Um, It's always great to have more eyes and um, just to have someone to enjoy the journey with, too. You know, I think that was a big part of it for me. I did bird alone at times in my local patches, of course, where I felt um, most familiar with the territory and the lay of the land. Um, But there were some extreme conditions, you know, 23 below in Duluth, Minnesota, with friends and, uh, you know, I it, I needed to be around people and so, doing the Kalima Warbler hike. I probably, that was, Big Bend was new to me. I was unfamiliar with the terrain and um, that's probably something I wouldn't have attempted without my Uncle David, who was familiar with it. Um, so, you know, I think uh, for me, it was a really big part of it to share it with others, but also uh, following the Girl Scout rule of buddy system.
2: One of the things I did at the beginning of the year before my year, my big year, is I um, had a group of women birder friends that I said, are you interested in coming with me on some of my big year adventures? If you are, I'll put you on my list. And every time I knew in advance where I was going, which isn't, of course, all the time, I would send out an email to all of them and say, okay, I'm going to Arizona this week. You want to come along? And I often had women Along with me, which of course you know isn't tra- like traveling with a man, but it, you know it is safety in a little bit in numbers. But most of it was alone, and I do remember going up Big Bend, and and uh, meeting a hiker all by myself going up to the Kalima, and and meeting a hiker who said, "There's a mountain lion down the trail," and I, <laughs> I'm not very bright. I I I just I just thought. I want to see the mountain lion. (laughs) (laughs) So I actually walked down the trail. And the trail had a canyon overlooking where you were walking. And it was dry, rustly branches. And everything, things would make noises. And I thought, that mountain lion is right above me, looking down at me. But I never saw the mountain lion. I turned around eventually and did birding instead. (laughs) But but I, I tend to ignore bad things. I'm a Pollyanna, if you ever remember what that word means. And I just tend to think, it's going to be okay. I'm going to be fine. And when it isn't fine, then I'd have to deal with it. But, you know, mostly I don't actually worry about it.
3: I think I probably took more risks than any woman should. Um, I bird alone most of the time. And during my big year, I had a lot of help. And it was... Hard for me, actually, to adapt to birding with other people. And Anne and I have talked about this a lot because she did a a big year in British Columbia and she spent a lot of time alone. Um, For me, I think it's an attitude. I came across a lot of situations that were a little edgy, to say the least. Um, Specifically coming to mind when I was looking um, for the Amazon Kingfisher in Laredo. Laredo, Texas is a pretty dangerous town. And I hiked probably eight hours by myself on, on trails that there were no other people and came across some men that I had to handle uh, a very bad situation. But I speak Spanish. I spoke to them in Spanish and kind of brought the situation down. And I think that that's really important if you act confident and you make eye contact and you engage The people that you come across, you can almost always find some sort of common ground and diffuse whatever is getting ready to happen. So even though I'd have to say maybe four or five times during my big year, I was in some danger, um, it never escalated.
6: The question that's being posed to all of the panelists is what one thing would you have done differently in your big year?
1: Well, again, being a photographer, I wanted to take pictures of birds and get decent shots, and I was I was told that if you take a repositioning cruise, you can see a lot of species that you can't normally see, And but it would be very hard to get pictures of them. And so I chose to not do that that year, and I went on a repositioning cruise last year and got pictures of everything that I saw, <laughs> diagnostic pictures, so I think I would have done that differently because I could have added several birds. A, a repositioning cruise is basically the cruise line is moving a ship from one port to another, maybe doing, so they, they instead of making stops at different ports along the way, it's basically at sea, and they're at the right exact spot that you can see birds, the seabirds that you're looking for, but they're still in the ABA area because they're not too far out. I would move to Alaska so that I wouldn't have to fly there 15 times. <laughs>
4: There, there are some different avenues I could go. Some of you know um, some of the backstory of mom's big year. I was um, struggling with some personal um, issues and anxieties um, from post-traumatic stress from a family um, accident. I was having trouble actually for about 10 years before the big year driving uh, over, and this is tough to talk about, but... Um, Driving over bridges and through tunnels, um, and it started the anxiety started superimposing itself on my highway driving. I mean, try and do a big year without driving the highways, right? So, if there were one thing in hindsight, um, I tried to address that issue with my big year, and because I was so sleep deprived and spread so thin, um, I didn't address it as early in the big year. Many of you here in this room part of the Wild Side team, Gabrielle standing in the back, Greg, they all drove me, many of you, others, aside from the Wild Side team, drove me places because I did not feel comfortable flying into an area because of this post-traumatic stress and this personal issue I was dealing with. I couldn't do it on my own. And um, I did address it. It wasn't until September of my big year, and I wish I had started a little sooner. But the big year still continues, even though it was in 2016. Um, And you're all part of it right now, actually, because I was able to drive eight hours from Maryland. And I've never been able to do that. This year, I drove from Maryland to here and have never, ever been able to do that in the four years that I've been coming to the biggest week.
2: I would have um, done some serious uh, fitness exercising before, especially climbing steps, like going up Big Bend. I mean, I, my father smoked a bazillion packs a day, and I have lung, I think I have no lungs. And so I have hard, really ty- hard time getting my breath. And climbing up for, like, Madeira Canyon over and over again, Big Bend, I mean, I just, I, I should have worked harder at that. Be
5: to notice that my driver's license was about to expire... <laughs> And so I did not get to Fort Huachuca because they, my license had expired the day before. <laughs> and it was not a legal license, and she couldn't let me in. <laughs> All
3: right, so my question is, uh, what's one thing you would tell someone contemplating a big here? Like, uh, what are the things to do? What are the things to uh, avoid doing? I think one has just been touched upon, and John and I were talking about this yesterday. Um, I was an athlete before I was a big-year birder. I played tennis seven days a week most of my life, and so I was very fit when I started my year. I'm not fit now because of the road food. Um, That's a whole nother topic, but... Fitness is a key component of a big year, and people underestimate how much work physically you have to do to endure an entire year of birding. So I would definitely recommend that people have a good level of fitness. Um, adaptability, be prepared for anything that happens, because it's a long period of time and you have to be flexible because life is throwing stuff at you all the time. And I'm fond of saying that no one does a big year in a vacuum. So even though you have the time set aside, your real life is still going on and it interferes with your big year and you have to be able to adapt to all of those changes. So those are two key things that I I would recommend for people to consider.
4: My advice for someone contemplating a big year is to just do it. Um, there is no um, perfect time. I tend to be a perfectionist. And uh, as by about February of my big year, um, I was in tears several nights in a row once I found out about the job at the bird banding lab. I was excited about the job, but I knew that that would change the face of my big year significantly. They wanted me full-time on top of my teaching job, so I just knew that that was going to change the face of my year, and the matriarch of my local Howard County Bird Club in Maryland, Joe Solom, um, and I affectionately call her the matriarch of the bird club, she told me, there is no perfect year to do a big year, Nancy. Just do it. Make it your own personal journey. Because I knew I wasn't going to hit the marks that I was hoping to hit because of the things that happened in my life that year, because of the struggles and because of the jobs and the kids and the husband and all that stuff, all those great things. Um, but I am so glad I took her advice because I, pr- I pretty much had canceled the big year by the end of February. and. Um, I wouldn't be here before you all today feeling this love. Thank you.
5: The American Birding Association, one of the slogans is a million ways to bird. And there's a million ways, well, maybe a few fewer, uh, to do a big year and uh nancy has put me to shame in many ways i too am a mom i too was a teacher and she is organized she knows all kinds of things that i'm just way more scattered way more spontaneous uh, without thinking things through um and uh, so but I think that when you do a big year, you just have to know what birds you really want to see and come up with a plan on how to see them. And that's a big
1: year. Well, I think um, I was in contact with Evie right after I finished my big year. So I think I gave her the advice of, this is going to be the best year of your life. You know, good luck. And I can't can't remember the exact words, but... And I've been in contact with other big year birds... <laughs> um but you know I just make it the best year of your life you know live in the moment and make it make it yours everybody's different what's going to make you happy you have to just listen to your internal voice and do whatever's best for you and life's too short not to do not to live your dream
2: Amen, amen, and I, I, amen to all of those, and so I, I have to think of something else, <laughs> so, um, well, I, so I'll be sort of mundane about it, but um, you may think you know all the birds, or maybe not, but if even if you think you know all the word, birds, what I found, one of the most helpful things to do was to sit down with my favorite bird book, which is the National Geographic one, and to figure out where each bird in that book could be and when it might be there, and I used, I, Greg Miller laughs at me, but I use my little, my post-it note system. And I and I take the post-it notes and I write on it. You know, in Janu- August 9th, I need to be at Madeira Canyon to look for the Aztec thrush or whatever. And I stick it on my calendar, which was dedicated to the big year only. And then I start moving post-it notes around because you can it turns out everywhere you have to be, you always have to be everywhere in spring, I mean, you, all at the same time. And so you have to adjust and you have to be flexible and you move the dang post-it notes and, or you get rid of them. But, um, <laughs> but you have to start with a plan. And to me, that sort of makes it concrete to figure out what on earth I'm going to do.
0: Starting with Lynn, the question is about whether you felt the competition during your year, and and whether being a woman makes that competitiveness more or less overt.
2: No women had done it, to my knowledge. And everywhere I went, I would say, no other women have done it, to my knowledge, in a serious way that they might get to 700. I didn't think I was going to get there, but, you know. Um, So, I was competing against men only. And so, I, I, it was lucky. To me, I think it was lucky. I, no one else, to my knowledge, was doing a big year when I was doing my ABA big year. So I was not competing with anybody moment to moment. It was just me against me doing as best I can. And there was I had the idea of the numbers I would love to have gotten to, but it really didn't feel like a competition at all. My, my husband laughs when I say I'm not competitive, but it didn't feel that way. <laughs>
1: There was quite a bit of competition in 2016. (laughs) Most of it I can't talk about (laughs) in public, but if you buy me a drink, I might tell you. (laughs) But a lot of your your success is based on the amount of money. There are a lot of factors that go into success. And, And looking at numbers of species that you see, that was not my goal at the beginning of the year, to see the most species. It was my goal to photograph the most species and break that record and so i i did accomplish breaking that record and still hold the record so i'm happy with that that accomplishment i think it's um and that's what that's what i'm very proud of i actually broke neil hayward's record so i, I did not expect to break neil hayward's record and <laughs> but it, it it um it all came together it was an amazing year i i'm just really great friends with my competitors. I mean, Christian's back there. He's like my adopted son. And, you know, we, we joined together. Christian and John and I joined together and did trips at the end of the year. You know, once we got to know each other, it's like cheaper to do things together. And, um, and so, as long as you had the same mission, um, we would join forces. And it, it was actually—I I love my competition. <laughs>
5: Um, My hero of the birding universe has always, from the time I started birding, been Chandler Robbins. He's a man. He, He died last year. He was probably the least competitive person I've ever known, and he kind of a little bit took me under his wing at the first AOU meeting I ever attended, and he became my Uh, North Star on how to be. So I've never felt competitive. And it was, for me, hitting 600 in one year. Uh, There was a book Roger Torrey Peterson edited, uh, The Birdwatcher's Anthology, and it had an essay about the 600 club. And it just was like, what I needed to do to be in a little club. And that is not to say I don't love competition. Right this very moment, the Cubs are winning 12 to 3. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm afraid that I'm not a very competitive person. But I do not chalk it up to being a woman. I chalk it up to being in
4: the Chandler Robbins camp. Well, for me, I am—I can be a competitive person, and to be honest, it was—it was, um, it was uh, an evolving big year. I had to change uh, my mindset. Um, in the beginning, I was watching numbers of competitors pretty closely um, in 2016, and once those two jobs. Follow my lap. I knew it was going to be a different type of big year for me, and that I wasn't going to be in the top five or, or so on. I was in the top something, but thirty something or so. But um, it, it just um, that was tough for me to swallow. Um, but again, the matriarch of the club, Greg Miller, in the back there, and um, all the supporters along the way really helped me evolve and grow as a person. And um, that competitive spirit changed to more of me putting my blinders on and working from the outside, working to, to the inside, working into um, what was important for my own personal growth and overcoming my struggles. And for me, in the end, it ended up not being a number, uh, but something that was priceless to my life, um, overcoming those anxieties and those, those things that I was struggling with.
3: Come on, we got to have one person that talks about being competitive. I was told by my tennis partner at one time that I am the most competitive person they ever met in their life. I compete going to the mailbox, okay? So for me, it was about winning. It was about getting the number. I wanted to be one of three women that had ever reached above 700 species in one calendar year. That was it for me. And when I reached that goal, I set a new goal. I reached 700 in July, and I said, my God, I might be able to beat John Weigel. So (laughs) I am very goal-oriented. I set a goal, I achieved it, and I set a new goal. Having said that, what happened in the process was that I got so much more out of it than just the competition. It was a personal quest. Um, My mother died during my big year, and I had to deal with some incredibly difficult times. And thank God for my birding, because it gave me the strength and the motivation to accomplish the goal and to continue it for my mother. Because when my mother was very ill, I said, Mom, should I stop? She said, No, I do not want you to stop your life for me. You go out there and you do it. Oh, and also I want to talk about, because this is very important to me, Laura touched upon it. I had never met Laura or Lynn when I started my year, but I wanted to be part of their club. And Laura reached out to me on day one, which just touched me incredibly that another woman that had just completed her journey would reach out to me on my very first day and say, anything I can do for you, uh, call me. I'm there for you. I'm going to be your biggest cheerleader. And she was. There wasn't a week all last year that Laura didn't talk to me, motivate me, give me advice, help me. And even when she realized that I was going to break her record, she still encouraged me. She still gave me tips when I was going to Hawaii the second time and said this is what you need to do. This is this is how you're going to get the next bird. That was amazing.
6: Uh, I want to thank all of you for being here this evening, for being part of the Biggest Week in American and Birding and supporting all of the things that we're trying to accomplish for birds um, with the success and the reach of this event. I want to thank John Lowry for his incredible work, especially juggling all of these microphones. I want to thank my partner, Nate Kaziki, for being here and supporting me throughout this week. I hope you'll, you'll, want to still do this job by Friday. Um, and I want to thank all of you for all that you've done to motivate and inspire us and to teach us about birds and to teach us that there are no limits. And what I think is so extraordinary is that while each of them represents an individual quest or journey, it's, it really encapsulates all the things that I love about birds, that even in a very focused big year it can still birds can still be whatever you want them to be it can be about solitude about camaraderie it can be about competitiveness or sharing and isn't that what brings us all together i just think that this has been such a wonderful powerful example of that and i hope all of you will continue to share your experiences with us and that if there's anyone here who's inspired to do a big year let these ladies know that you inspired them so thank you very much i hope the re- we've got a lot of birds coming folks it's been one of those magical years so so thank you guys very much i hope the rest of your time at biggest week is wonderful
0: The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We are a membership organization and you can help us fulfill our mission to inspire all people to enjoy and protect wild birds by joining today. It's also a great way to help support this podcast and the other free resources that the ABA provides the birding community. You can get more information at aba.org slash join. Special shout out to Chris and Cammie Niehoff of Columbus, Ohio. Eric and Jennifer Halverson of Aliso Viejo, California. Chase Moxley of Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Christopher Connors of Clay, New York, Jody Bow of Golden Valley, North Dakota, and John Kitziner of Bulls Gap, Tennessee, all of whom joined the ABA or renewed their membership recently and noted the podcast as a reason. Thanks to you all and welcome to the ABA, or welcome back, I suppose. Executive producer of the ABA podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who notes that the key to a great year is not to get hung up on the different types of sauces to keep your mind open. I'm sorry, that is an advice for a BBQ pig ear. Technical production is by John Lowry, who suggests that the best way to circumnavigate the globe is east to west to take advantage of the prevailing winds in the Southern Hemisphere. Okay, that's advice for a Marconi rig gear. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, who say that you can take several saplings and put them in a pot together. Eventually, they're going to fuse together to make a large trunk. And it looks like that is advice for a strangler. Year, Um, you can find us online at aba.org on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders and on Twitter at ABA. We have 12 months to prevent the general moral decay, which would invite the intrusion of evil and despotic rulers. According to this book by John Milton, sorry, that's from my other podcast about a radical wig year. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening till next time.